What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And we're going to finish, well, the second part of your fairly harrowing story there of getting into an altercation. Luckily, no one was killed. You weren't killed. You You didn't kill the other guy. But I guess that wasn't the end of it. So kind of as a quick recap, you got stabbed in the shoulder by a spear with a knife on the end of it it was a deep wound and you had a shaved down domino that you were able to use to manipulate the gate the door on your cell so kind of as this guy's stabbing you you jump out beat him up and you know, after a few days, I guess, did you think that was the end of that? Or did you think, now there's going to be some more repercussions here? Well, yeah, that, that was on my mind because I'd obviously done this, you know, I beat this guy up and you don't really beat people up in prison. I, I, I refused to use a weapon. So I used my hands and feet, which is my best assets. And yeah, when this happened, I'm, I'm back in my cell. I'm constantly you know, vigilance. This is, I'm in a state of vigilance. I don't know if they're going to try again. Um, I had told his crew boss or his captain that pretty much, you know, that he had green-lighted it, so basically go screw off. So when you tell those guys that are made guys those type of things, yeah, there's a bit of respect they have for you because, but they're also thinking, yeah, we got to kill this guy. So that was constantly in my mind over the, I mean, think about this. Every day I left my cell, every day I went to the shower, I'm looking at the door to see if there's another domino there or something. Someone's going to try and get me. I'm, I'm watching every person because every person could be behind a mask telling me that smiling at me and how you doing, but they're, they're looking for a way to position me so they can kill me. This is, just so the audience knows, you're living in a place where you have two tiers, here, which is a floor, has 14 cells, so there's 14 killers in each of those um, cells, or guys that are soldiers, or mob members, or guys that are in the loop, or associates of the mob. So all these guys are potential killers. So this is how I'm living, and I'm, I'm a 21-year-old kid with grown men that are, in my opinion, not friendly. They're you know, they're qua- 
quasi-friendly. They're frenemies. They smile at you, but something else can be going on. So for the next few months, every day it's like this. Um, it's exhausting. You sleep extremely vigilant. Because remember, while you're sleeping, you're, the bars to your cell are open. Someone can come by in the day and spear you or light you on fire. So you sleep basically with one eye open. And just imagine that every day. So you can imagine my relief when Trigger and Shotgun, Trigger being the guy that I got into the altercation with, they, they catch a chain, which is the bus to a different prison, and they're gone. And then Boxer, his crew chief, also leaves. It was a huge relief when they were gone. I didn't have to think about them anymore. Uh, I didn't relax, but I felt a lot better. So there's still, even after this altercation, I guess it makes sense that it would escalate things, but this is all stemming from one fairly minor incident. So there's really no way after this fact to quash this uh, until either everyone dies or leaves the prison. Yeah, it's very difficult to know what orders that other guy left. I mean, hold on, Matt. Mistakes. Hey, who's hitting the phone? Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Sorry about that, Matt. Someone tripped over the court like a freaking moron. He unplugged it. I forgot what you were saying. How to squash it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not possible just to squash something in prison because you don't know all the players. Yes, it started off an incident between myself and Trigger and basically just telling him to shut the hell up. But it escalated once he, he made a weapon, he got a green light from a main guy. Once they're gone, I don't know who their associates were. Well, all of them, everybody there was their associate. But would they be willing to step up to do something? And look, I'm not innocent in all of this. So let me make it clear. I knew all these guys. I was selling to all these guys. We were on mutual terms. They respected me because of what I brought to the table. Um, there's only one thing they respect in prison, and that's how much potential do you, ha do you have to meet that ultimate goal of killing somebody else. So if you're a skilled fighter or an aggressive person, wolves respect wolves. So in that sense, I was with them in there. But... I wasn't anybody. I wasn't you know, a maid guy. I wasn't a, a gang member. None of those things are true. So so I was going out to the yard every day. They had this roof where you would rise up to this roof in an elevator, and I would go out there every day. It didn't matter if it was windy, if it was raining, and it was at 5 in the morning, and no one went out but me. And I was in a complete state of hyper-vigilance. So I'm, tra I'm training as I as I did in the street, uh, in the martial arts, I was honing my skills as best I could to anticipate anything. So about two or three months later, I'm returning from the roof, and when I enter the vestibule, which is right before you enter into the unit, I find myself in front of four guys, all in chains. Um, there's several um, officers there with them, they have batons out, and I know these guys are going to add surrogation. And you can tell by looking at these guys, they had just come back from prison. And these guys were 
physically imposing individuals, at least as tall as I am, six one, six two, six three, uh, fully tattooed, uh, very developed physically, and I could tell all these guys were made guys. So I just stand fast waiting for them to be unchained and let down into the unit. And I'm also already chained. So all the guys are doing that. And the last guy, he's the youngest of all of them, is wearing a mask, a very light-complected guy. When they take the chains off him, the officers immediately step back and pull out their batons. And it's the most insane thing. He has three officers with batons, and he's just standing there. And all he does is smile at them. But the smile is full of, he's almost taunting them. They know who he is, they know what he is, but most importantly, they know what he brings to the table. And instead of going down the stairs as they've asked him, he suddenly turns and starts walking towards me. Look, I'm pretty confident in my skills as a fighter, but I was chained up and he had nothing on. He walks up to me and he is as clearly as tall as I am, but he outweighs me by about 40 pounds of muscle. He sticks, up, sticks out his hand and he shakes my hand. And he says, you down here with us? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I'll see you when we get downstairs. And he turned and he walked down, opened the door and walked downstairs into the unit. He left both of the officers or guards just with their mouth hanging open because there was nothing they could do to this guy. And of course, they take the chains off of me and let me downstairs and they gotta tell me, hey, they have to impose their will on me. You know, you go out too much. You're up there every day, we got to fight for him away so you don't have to go up there every day. I didn't say anything and I went back into my cell. But once I'm in my cell, I'm listening to everybody talking and everybody's yelling down these guys. I can tell these guys are heavy hitters. And then I find out that they've been assigned to my day room group, which is, for two hours a day, you walk into a day room, you can make phone calls, the shower's right next to it, but you go on and you play cards or whatever. So, really dramatic. All these guys, when they go into the day room up two hours later, and they take off their shirts, I realize I'm 100% right. All of them have black hands on their chests, shoulders, stomach. The black hand is the trademark or the of the Mexican Mafia, and they have on the inside of the hand a big M, or some of them have Emero on it, um, obviously high-ranking members. And I'm in the day room group with them, I'm the youngest guy there, we're all shaking hands, and Chapo, the guy who had shook my hand earlier, hears that somebody calls me mad. He turns immediately and says, your name is Matt? I said, yeah. What's up? He says, you also go by Sinbad? No, my, my antenna goes up. I don't know what this guy, this guy always, his posture is aggressive. I said, yeah, that's me. He says, hey man, my celly, monster, sends his regards to you. He says you're a good man and that you can be trusted. That is huge because monster is a made guy. He's my workout partner. Now I have an alliance at least one that's superficial. We shake hands again. The rest of the guys say, look, we need to talk some business. They go off into the corner and they go talk whatever they're talking about. Because you have to understand the situation here. 
these guys have been brought down from Folsom. There's a reason for that. It isn't, well, let's take a vacation. No. They had one of their crew members, which was another guy in the day room, uh, named Diablo. He had, he got his attorney to get subpoenas from these guys. The reason? For a meeting. They brought all these heavy hitters down, and they're able to use the phone in this particular place cannot, that, that can't be monitored because of pre-trial detainees cannot, their conversations are confidential. That's something they couldn't do in prison. So they're down here having a meeting and I'm sitting to the side. I want nothing to do with that meeting. It would be disrespectful for me to try to listen so I stay away from them. So, you, man, you can imagine the situation. You have now, in that day room, six made guys, all heads of either a family or a crew in the prison system. Yeah. So you got to be wondering what is his motivation for being nice to me. Yeah. So, so the, their attorney was in on this plan to get them transferred to a jail from a prison. That sounds uh, almost implausible from a lay perspective. Well, you see, the the attorneys don't know what's going on. They're, let's say, okay, so their client, who was Diablo, he was there for murder, he tells them, look, I want character witnesses for my murder trial. And I want you to bring down my best buddies because they can tell about how grave of, of, a, you know, of an altar boy I was. So the attorney has no choice. He subpoenas these guys because his client wants them as character witnesses. Of course, the ruse, they're not going to testify to nothing. These guys don't testify to nothing. But because he put a subpoena out, they have to transport these guys back. It had nothing to do with the trial. It had everything to do with the meeting they wanted to have. Right. So they're kind of being welcoming to you after intimidating the guards. And now you're in the same room. And you got to be thinking there's got to be some ulterior motive, right? A little bit until he mentioned Monster. Once he mentioned him, I knew that Chapel and Monster on the same crew. And therefore, he was sort of an ally because Monster respected me. He, he considered me his what they call a road dog, meaning I worked out with him, he trusted me, and although I wasn't with those guys, he felt and he told this guy, hey, that kid right there, that's a good kid right there. That's a solid guy. You don't have to worry about him telling on you or anything. So that gave me a little bit of comfort, but it doesn't matter because, remember, Boxer put a green light on me, and he's also a made guy. So it depends on the alliances, how strong they are. This is a huge thing. So, you know, we spent a, a couple hours in the day room, and I go to leave, and right away, Chapo takes over the broom. He's out of the broom. He's told Olaf, hey, I need to be out there. No one's going to question this guy. So he, I can see into the mirror because there's a big plexiglass uh, window where all the officers walk. I can see what he's doing. He's upstairs. He's talking to different people. And sure enough, about a couple hours later, he shows up in front of my house or my cell. And I'm obviously, I'm always drawing. So I was there drawing. He said, oh, man, you draw? I said, yeah. So I showed him I was drawing. He was looking, looking at my cell and everything. But I knew he was making small talk when suddenly he says, so I hear you popped out on Trigger's ass. How did you do it? He was asking me a question. 
And I could have lied to him, but I figured, you know what? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I told him, listen, it's not about me getting out of my cell. It's who showed me how to do it. I'm sure you understand that I can't say anything, but let me talk to that guy, and if he says okay, then I'll tell you. He said, all right, and he walked away. That did not please him, but he had to respect my position. Most guys would have just folded because who he was. So immediately, I sent a note over to Olaf and threw a little line. So you, you tap his door, he knows, and I said, look, I got a note for you, and I shoot a line over, he hooks it, and I put a little note on there. I wrote him what was going on. His reply was, look, I knew that once I showed you how to do that, the cat would be out of the bag and people would want to know. Just, um, you know, let him know that he can talk to me and I'll tell him how to do it. So I said, sure enough. So the next day I go upstairs and who follows me? Chapo. He goes up there with me. And he's making small talk and I, I know that the question is going to come. After I get done working out, he says, hey, uh, we got 10 minutes. Let's talk. He says, I look, I want to know how you got out of that cell. And I, again, I said, listen, I didn't do it. Uh, Olaf taught me. He gave me an item, which he'll talk to you about. He told me to let you know. Go talk to him. He'll give you all the information. He looks at me and he says, and his reply was really interesting because he looked and he said, you know what, man? You're all right. Most people would have opened their big mouth, but you kept your shut. I respect that. You know the business. That was it. That was the only thing that he said regarding that issue. He never brought it up again. So, of course, I know he's going to initiate a plan. And all of this has to do with the first episode because all this has to do with me. Had I never come out of that cell, this guy never would have known this and never would have asked for that information. But now he has the information. And these guys don't do anything without a reason. So... Here's the reason. A guy by the name of Medina had been arrested for a, a bunch of multiple robbery murders of AMPM mini markets. The problem was that he murdered a bunch of kids that were working there, 15, 16 year old kids. That didn't set well with these made guys. First of all, most of the victims were Hispanic. Number two, there were kids. And every time that Chapo got around us and he saw the guy Medina, whose nickname was Magilla. That's Magilla Gorilla because he was a six foot three and a half, 270 pound beast. When he see him, you know, he'd just tell us, man, I'm going to kill that guy. And that's, he left it at that. So I knew it wouldn't be long till they initiated that plan. They wanted to know how to get out of the cell because they wanted to get at this guy. So while we're in the day room, this guy named Negro come, drives up as well. This guy only has nine months of time to do, but he's such an aggressive guy in prison. Before they let him out, they brought him to the hole and he's there. And he volunteers to kill Magilla Gorilla. Just like that. He's got nine months left to go home. But he said, hell, I'll kill him. Let me call back. Yeah, so you can imagine, and I'm sure the listeners and, well, you are listening and thinking the same thing. How could these how could these kind of uh, things be going on right under everybody's nose? You'd be surprised at how many things happen behind prison walls in this world, and decisions on life or death are being made by guys in 
blue jeans and blue shirts rather than judges or juries. Um, the difference is the sentence is swift and it comes unexpectedly. Um, so, look, I know they're going to get this guy. And I know that people are thinking, well, then wh why didn't you report it? Look, I get it. But at that time in my life, living in that world, or in this world, I'm still, I'm still living at San Quentin's death row, it's something you don't do. You don't talk because you'll die. It's that simple. And I was very immature. I, I had my, my priorities, if you want to call it. My priorities weren't completely, perfectly set. Um, peer pressure, where you live, your environment, all has a huge impact on you. So, you know, a couple of weeks passed, but I know these guys will be returning to prison soon. So I knew that they were going to do it. So I'm sitting in my cell one evening, I'm reading a book, and I see that they're running showers. So I see Magilla Gorilla walk by my cell and walk into the shower. I'm thinking they're going to get him as he's walking in the shower. But then I hear the door of the shower close and think, huh, I guess they're going to get him when he comes back. Because about an hour before that, Chente had told me, hey, man, they're going to punch that guy's ticket today. It didn't surprise me. I expected it. So then I see Negro come down. He's on the broom. He's sweeping. He's walking. He puts the mop right in front of my cell. And then he takes off his jumpsuit. He has his shoes on. And I kind of like wonder, like, what is he doing? And suddenly I hear the door of the shower being ripped off its hinges. And I think, oh, hell. I never even thought about them putting the domino in the door of the shower. So I hear Magilla say, hey, what the hell, nigga? And it starts. And you can hear the struggle. I mean, I can't see because they're inside a locked shower area, which the door's open now. But you can hear the, you can hear the knife going into him. That, there's no other way to describe it. Suddenly, Magilla Gorilla comes out of the shower and he has Negro on top of him. He is just stabbing him in the throat, in the chest, in the stomach. He's body slammed him into the concrete. Magilla has been able to get up, shakes him off him. He throws a punch, hits him right in the face, which staggers Negro. But he, but as that happens, Magilla turns and tries to run towards the front so the he could ask for help. At that same time, the officer's coming down, opens the door to his plexiglass thing, and he sees what's going on. He immediately starts running towards these guys, but he's in a plexiglass booth. There's nothing he can do but yell and say, please stop. That's not going to stop anything. Now, this time, Nagro has got a hold of Magilla again. And these are two large men, as I, I mentioned. Magilla's about 6'4", 6'3 270, and his other guy's about 6'2", about 240 pounds. These are big men. And he is just stabbing the hell out of this guy. Blood is pouring out of every wound. Every time he breathes, blood squirts out of him. And finally, he goes to one knee, and he's falling, and Nagra's on him. He's still continuing to stab him, and suddenly he stops. He backs away, and he just looks at the cop. He's covered in blood. He's just laughing at him. He says, you can close my door now. He walks in the cell, the door closes. Magilla, he stumbles, bleeding profusely, out to the door. The door's open. He goes to the vestibule, and then it's, I can't see anything else. 
medical staff has rushed into to help this guy. But, I mean, I, I think he's going to die. He's been stabbed well over 30 times. And I can hear that they're they're passing the knife around to, to get it flushed on a toilet somewhere else because they need to shut the water off so no one can flush anything. And this all, again, comes from that one little lone domino. And the information of that being exposed and then them using it immediately as a way to conduct their business. Now, later on that night, I find out that Magilla, whose name is Medina, his first name is Trefoyo Medina, uh, that he survived. He was stabbed over 31 times, punctured lung, kidneys, liver, throat, um, and he survived it. And he actually was given the death penalty. He was given the death penalty and ended up on death row here with me. And a couple of years ago, he passed away. He died. I guess this Olaf guy was really the the originator of this of this specific technique, and no one had really ever thought of it before. Or did he learn it from someone else? Was he just really industrious that way? He may have learned it from somebody, but he was a very intelligent guy, and he always watched things. I learned a lot of things from him. He watched everybody, and that's something that I learned from him as well. I mean, not learned it. I honed it. I honed those skills. But yeah, he, he knew a lot of different things. He knew where, um, he knew that the, the shower area was made out of limestone. It's the best place to sharpen knives. There's all these things, this information that he had, he sometimes taught other people. That domino was a huge thing. And actually, after, uh, many guys came out of their cell later because of that. But it just goes to show you that one small event, meaning me telling Trigger to shut up, led to him stabbing me and me beating him the hell out of him, which then jumped to this situation, which is attempted murder on somebody else. And because of that, those things, it's like a domino effect. It just keeps going. Um, look, the guy, uh, Negro, received nine years for that, for an attempted murder. He had nine months left to go home, which he probably would have done three and a half to four months. And he exchanged that for nine years just to impress somebody, just to make his bones so he can rise in the ranks. That's pretty insane, at least in my viewpoint. Yeah, but we learn that these guys get a lot of validation from other creeps. So what was the turnover like in jail? I mean, how long were you there and how long would this problem have taken to to blow over, I don't know, without th this this violence? Well, the first incident happened a few months prior to this incident, and um, I was in that hole for about a year, and I spent a total of four and a half years in that particular uh, jail uh, awaiting my trial, um, which then led to me being convicted and sentenced to death, which then I came here to St. Quentin. But that process was about four and a half years, and and as I've mentioned, there's a third part to the story. It kind of it's going to demonstrate to the audience 
how these things transpire and how they carry over, no one forgets anything in prison. No one does, especially the guys that you've disrespected or the ones that you feel that you've gotten over on them somehow. You know, the most petty of things become the most serious of things in here. Um, it's just the way it is when you put a bunch of men together that are testosterone-driven and have nothing else better to do than to work on their reputation as criminals and killers. So would this have played out roughly the same way, say, if this happened on death row, where for the most part no one's moving around and everyone already knows each other? Well, yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. The answer is yes, because then you go to yard. It also depends on who you're dealing with. If you're dealing with uh, some clown, you know, like some of the guys you and I have talked about, like serial killers or guys that I thought were a bunch of cowards anyway, they killed a bunch of little kids, nothing's going to happen. I could have basically slapped the guy and he would have probably tucked his tail and walked. It all depends on who the other person is. If you're dealing with another convict, if you even step on his toes in any way, shape, or form, and he feels disrespected, his actions will be immediate and severe. It's the way things are here. Look, I don't make the rules. I speak this language, but I, I truly don't. I wish I was not in these circumstances. I, I, I hate it that everything is so serious. Everything can't be dealt with with a simple, hey, my apologies. Uh, it was a simple mistake. Um, look. I'll take full responsibility and it's over with like normal people in society. Well, some people too, I guess, but it isn't like that in prison. There's always all ulterior motives, there's politics involved and you never know how quickly it's going to escalate. And you can't really stay neutral because you were trying to stay neutral for as much as you could, but you're still going to get pulled into it. Yeah, in a lot of cases, especially if you're young and you don't know exactly where you're stepping, now I have a pretty good lay of the land. I know how to stay out of things. I know that when someone, even a guy like Chapo would ask me now as the nearly 60-year-old man, well, I'm 57, the man that is now, and that I am now, and if he asks me something, even if a guy like Chapo approaches me now at my age, I could simply tell him, look, it's got to do with me. Leave me out of it. It has to do with age, maturity, and how well you're adapted you are to dealing with these guys and how well they know you. If they've known you for years, they know that you're serious, that you're, that you're not involved, they tend to stay away from you. But anything can happen. I'm just better equipped now to deal with these things based on maturity. I mean, I've, I've grown up since then. I was, I'm not gonna lie, I was, I was a pretty violent guy. If someone stepped on my toes, I responded immediately to it because I knew if I didn't, the other wolves would attack me and kill me. It's that simple. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, barbaric. That's the way things are in a real prison setting or a real setting where real convicts are. Before we continue, I just want to say make sure and follow us on Instagram at Death Row Diaries, on Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Lastly, if you're listening, please tell a friend about the show. So, you've just involved yourself in this incident that has spiraled and now 
someone was nearly killed. Are you thinking, well, that's got to be the end of it, or are there still some tentacles left here? Well, you know, I don't know. So, you know, I'm always watching out for myself everywhere I step, but I, I don't know. I mean, the guys involved are now gone. Um, we are a couple of years now forward. This is 1987, and I'm about to go to a trial for murder. And, you know, I'm, I'm not happy. There's a lot of things going on with my attorneys. It has my mind on something totally different, specifically his performance, what he's not doing. And I had just gone to a visit with a friend, and we were discussing, you know, my attorney and, and the horrible job he was doing. And it was like I was very upset, and my mind was on that. I wasn't paying attention. For a brief moment, I dropped my guard. So I leave the visiting room, and I'm not in chains. I'm on the main line. You can walk around the jail pretty much on your own. So I'm, I'm leaving visiting, and I turn right, and I start walking towards where my unit is, which is on the fourth floor. But I have to walk through the area where, when you are going to court, there are these huge pens where they, all the inmates are housed. This is the weekend, so there are no inmates there, but I have to walk through this long, narrow straight. There's a, a long door at the very end of it and the door I've just come through. And I'm by myself, which doesn't hit my attention button, and it should have. So I continue to walk, and suddenly I hear it like scraping a tennis shoes against a very polished floor. You guys all know what it sounds like, squeaking. So at that same moment, I look up, and there's a guy walking towards me. He's Hispanic, he's Mexican, obviously a gang member, but everybody in that jail is, a, is probably a gang member, just about every one of them. So at the same moment, I turn behind me and I see two guys walking towards me and they're coming up quickly. And I turn towards the front and immediately I see the guy and he's pulling out a knife. He's walking towards me, he's pulling out a knife, and I immediately look behind me again quickly to see what they have and they're just rushing. What they're doing is they're pressing me into the guy, the hitter, with the knife. So at that moment, everything leaves my mind. I'm not thinking about my lawyer, I'm not thinking about the world. I'm thinking about this guy or these three guys who are going to try and kill me. Look, it's obvious. I, it wasn't a mistaken identity. They knew who I, who I was and although I didn't recognize them immediately, I knew them in business. So as the two of us collide, because I'm not going to turn around and go towards the guy that are following me, I'm going towards the guy who's the most dangerous, the guy with the knife. And as we cross paths or you know collide, he begins to stab at me. And you know it's it's not a good feeling to be uh, stabbed for that knife to enter your flesh. But I was able to fight back. I punched him in the throat which staggered him, and that gave me a chance to try and grab the knife from his hands. Uh, this guy was a big guy as well, so it was very difficult. There was already a bit of blood in my hand, so my hand slipped. The knife came out of my hand, and he had a hold of it, and he continued to stab at me. He tried to stab me in my stomach area, 
which I block, and then I kicked him in the groin as hard as I could, and I grabbed the knife again. This time, I was able to twist it and nearly snap his arm, and the knife hit the ground. When it hit the ground, I immediately kicked it away and into the, the locked cells that were right next to me. So you can imagine what's going on here, Matt. I got three guys on me. One of them had a knife. I have several puncture wounds in my chest, sides, and now it, it's a full-on brawl. Three against one. The knife is no longer in their hands. So just imagine that, okay? So how many times have you been stabbed at this point? I had I had four puncture wounds to my chest and another two to my, to my rib cage and one to my upper stomach. So when did you see this coming? Was it just a the actual split second before they kind of pushed you into the blade, almost like a, almost like a football move, right? Yeah, they had planned it. They knew where I was at. Um, and yeah, the two guys in behind were to make sure that I couldn't run. That would have to face this blade. Um, it was, yeah, it was a tactical, well-executed move. They got me with my, with my guard down. And um, you know, the two guys in the back were to press me into them, hoping that this guy then would kill me. So it was, I immediately knew it wasn't a fluke. This was an ordered hit. They were coming after me. So what kind of physical shape are you in at this point in terms of uh, the injuries? Well, they, they obviously, I could kill them, but they're not slowing me down. I mean, um, I'm ready for this. I'm always ready for this. These are three strong guys, three convicts that are trying to kill me. So as I said, I kicked the knife away, and it was in a holding cage, so they couldn't get to it. My biggest concern was, of course, being stabbed to death. Once that was out of the picture, but I had kicked it, and it put me out of position. So when I twisted to engage the two guys behind me, my vision exploded because someone cracked me right in the temple, and I just saw stars. Um, I fell to one knee and tried to get up, but there was too much damage. I was being beaten to the ground by these three guys, um, but I was semi-conscious, and I, I couldn't stop many of the blows. And either I, I went unconscious for a few seconds, but the next thing I remember is hearing an officer uh, telling the man to stand down. And the officer telling him to stand down to stop. And I was semi-conscious. I rose to my feet kind of on, on steady legs, and I dropped back down to my right knee to, to allow myself to, to know what was going on. There's a lot of blood coming out of my mouth, my nose. Uh, there was gashes all over me, and my jumpsuit was pretty much soaked in blood. But at that moment my mind began to clear a bit and it felt like I had forgotten something. I don't know what it was. Was it the beating I had taken? Was it something else? But I felt I had forgotten something and it seemed really important. So I stood again on really unstable legs and I looked at the men who had attacked me and that's when it hit me. Let me call back. Hey man. Do you have a concussion, or are you feeling totally not within your faculties at this point? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm sure I have a concussion. I'm 
half conscious. I'm I'm wobbling around. I mean, these guys, the first time that I've been beaten by three clowns. And as I said, when I stood up, I, I didn't know what I had forgotten, but it seemed important. And suddenly it hit me. The guy holding the knife or the head of the knife was one of Boxer's crew members and triggered Shotgun's partner. He had shaved off his mustache. So I didn't recognize it at first. So, you know, it snapped like a rubber band that obviously Boxer had put a hit on me for what I did to trigger in the high power units and for disrespecting him. And as like my senses come together, now anger sets in. I'm angry at myself for allowing these idiots to trap me in this way. And I walk right into a trap and I didn't even see it. I normally spot that stuff a mile away and I didn't. Um, so as I stand there and the officer saying, can you walk towards me? Are you okay? I look over at this guy and he smiles at me. And you know, it's, it, it really, that really got to me. It, it was taunting, he was taunting me. So there was a lot of cops standing right there. I was beaten badly. I was stabbed. I was bleeding from everywhere. And he somehow relaxed at that moment. And that's all it took. When I saw him relax, when I saw him relax, and his partners were several feet to the left with other officers there, they had their batons on everything, I immediately turned towards him, kicked him in the face, and hammered him to the ground with just punches to the face and dropped him right there. So once I'm standing over him, then I smile right back at him. And it looks a lot nastier because there's blood all over my face. I got blood on my jumpsuit. I must look like Carrie from the movie Carrie. And there's blood everywhere. And I looked at him and looked at his partners and I said, you're next. And in not so politically correct terms, I told those two guys that are with him, tell the puto that sent you to be a man and step up to the plate and not send kids to do his work. I'm sure that didn't go over very well, right? No, I mean, now you're antagonizing the situation even more, but you really don't have any other option, do you? No. You don't weaken to these guys. I basically, you know, so, hey, screw you. Again, you sent somebody after me and you failed again, basically. Um, better luck next time. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's ego, it's, it's, it's macho, bull, whatever you want to call it. But at that point, I have a possible broken nose, I have a concussion, I have holes in my body, I'm bleeding everywhere. Um, I'm not too worried right at that moment. So with that, I turn and I'm taken to the hospital where they... Uh, you know, most of the blood is soaking into my jumpsuit that, that hid the multiple wounds. And they asked how I was doing. I said, I'm doing great. Everything's fine. I didn't bring their attention to the stab wounds I had. I didn't tell them anything. I said, no, it's just blood from my nose on my jumpsuit. And I didn't say anything. So um, I wasn't going to bring it to their attention because I knew that once those three clowns got out of the hole, they would get written up for it. But here's the part that I was interested in. The report, the write-up, would show not attempted murder on me. It would say 
mutual combat. That wasn't what Boxer ordered. He wanted to see a confirmed report that I was stabbed and dealt with. But since I didn't bring the stab wounds to their, to their uh, attention or anything, the report would simply say mutual combat. So that was even a bigger slap to his face. That after putting now four guys on me, he still couldn't put me in my grave. That is a slap in the face to somebody. Is there a certain point where you can just prove yourself or that it's not worth it? Or, I mean, how are you locked into this struggle and you you really don't feel like there's an end to it? I don't really understand how you just keep going. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't answer that question completely. It's a death struggle with people and... Um, at that particular point in my life, there was no other way I could deal with it. That's how I dealt with it. Uh, of course, now things are different. But at that moment, when they closed that huge door, because they put me back in the hole because they considered it mutual combat, they didn't have a victim or a an aggressor. It was just four guys fighting. Um, and I was the one that, that threw the last blow. So I was thrown in a hole. I took off my jumpsuits. And with a wet towel, began to search my body for all the holes I had. So, of course, I had three punctures to my chest. There was a, a stab wound to my lower abdominal section. There was also deep scratches where the blade didn't go into my rib cage. But none of the wounds were life-threatening. I washed them best I could. I took a bird bath in the hole. I hadn't realized how exhausted I was because I don't know if some of the audience knows, but when you get into a death struggle with somebody and you fear for your life, all your adrenaline is pumping. These are chemicals that are going through your body. So when you end that particular moment, your body's drained. You know, and I felt like I was safe in that hole. There was no one who was going to get me. I achieved death once again. You know, I wasn't ready to bow down to death. And I'd fight to the end. That was, and possibly beyond that, that was my state of mind at the time. I was very young, very immature, and someone had just tried to kill me, and I survived it again. Yeah, I felt pretty good about myself. I wasn't thinking about Boxer or what could happen tomorrow, the next week, or the next month, or in five years. I figured he'd send the Green Reaper after me several times. He hadn't been successful. Better luck next time. I'll be ready. So, I guess the moral of the story is nobody forgets anything in prison. Um, a small event can carry on like the chaos effect. You know, the, the flapping of the wings of a butterfly turn into a hurricane letter. Look what's happened here. This thing has escalated. And um, I really didn't know what would happen. Um, not too long after that, I was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death. And I came to death row. And... I've had several altercations with people, a couple of them where people have come out after me with knives, and each time they've come after me, I've defeated them. And um, I don't know if you could say that I'm proud of it, it's just another day in the jungle, in the concrete jungle that I live in. And um, I'm okay with that. Um, I wish, and I, I tell you this with all sincerity, you and I have become pretty close friends, and there's a part of me that's tired, that's exhausted. I want all this to end. Um, I don't want to have to live in this type of society anymore. 
I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Um, every time I go to the yard, yes, I'm vigilant. Yes, I'm still the same guy I've always been that will fight for his life. But I wish it didn't have to be this way. I wish I could go out somewhere and people are not around me that have murder on their mind or politics on their mind that lead to murder. It's a very difficult existence. And after so many years of rehabilitating my state of mind and thinking in different terms, um, I realized that, you know, rehabilitation is only a word unless you actually live that state of mind. And, and the guys that I'm surrounded by don't live in that state of mind. So I'd like to someday soon be away from all this. I'm tired, Matt. It's, uh, it makes for great stories and great uh, memoirs, but my life has been exhausting. Nearly 40 years of fighting for my life, every day, no rest. Yeah, it gets to a guy sometimes. Yeah, it gets very exhausting, man. Um, yeah, sometimes, believe me, there are those moments I have that I say, I'm never going to go out again. But, you know, a few hours later, when they say yard release, I'm the first one working to go outside. Because it's the only place I can see the sun. It's the only place I get to breathe fresh air. It's a price you have to pay. Otherwise, you spend the rest of your time in a cell. And you basically admit that they've killed you and you, they've beaten you. Well, I guess that's the best conclusion we have at this point. So until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life will depend on it. Thank you.